You're listening to The Nature Photography Show. In this episode, I interview David Johnston. Howdy, folks. So tonight, I have an interview with Mr. David Johnston. How you doing, David? I'm good. How are you doing, man? I am doing better now. It's been a while since I've done a podcast recording, and as you could tell in the very beginning here, we had some issues, and all of that's okay, but I'm I'm glad that you're on the show tonight, and I wanted to give you the opportunity to tell everybody who you are, how you got where you are, what you love to do, what is it about photography that inspires you, and all of that good stuff for all the people that don't know who you are. Yeah, man, and like, no worries on, like, taken a while to get stuff out there i mean life happens and it gets in the way and you know i've taken six months off from photography before just to get my mind right in it after i i got off to a very fast start but i started probably getting really serious about it in 2010 uh, that's when i got my first dslr camera i had done some film uh, in the past and just gotten out and shot stuff that was around my house and where I grew up and went to high school and developed my own film in a dark room in high school and stuff like that. But once I got my DSLR, it really gave me the courage to like go out and shoot and not have to worry about, I just took a shot that could be terrible. And that's one piece of film that I have left. Um, so it, it's, if the film stuff was kind of a struggle just because you were worried about messing up all the time, but then digital came out and you had free reign just to take as many photos as possible. And I think that's where the light bulb really went off for me and, and being able to start taking a lot more photos and learning pretty quickly. Uh, I soon got off to a pretty fast start and started my own podcast uh, that I don't do anymore, but had a lot of fun doing for about three years. It was called Photography Roundtable. And um, after that, I got into doing some workshops and writing articles and doing some video tutorials. Uh, And then my wife and I actually made the decision to move to Haiti for a couple years to do mission work. And that's when I kind of took a step back from photography for about six months and kind of reevaluated things because I was getting a little burnt out. Um, It's funny how you can turn even a passion and even a desire that you have, you can turn that into burnout just by not taking care of yourself and not really focusing on what about it makes you happy. Uh, So I took those six months, took a step back, reevaluated everything and got back into video tutorials. And now my whole thing is, you know, I help you improve your photography through online video. And I do that through uh, tutorials out in the field on my YouTube channel, post-processing tutorials, and different things like that. I also partner with sites like Outdoor Photography Guide and Visual Wilderness and put out some video content on there too. So it, the whole thing about it is... is taking a step back and reevaluating. I love the video part of it and I love teaching. So it was kind of like a match made in heaven. Once we moved back, I mean, we only moved back about three months ago now. So I'm pretty fresh back into the United States still. So, um, but getting, getting back started with it has been really fun and, and, and surprisingly easier to do than I thought it would be just because I love, doing that. I think I want to touch a little bit on, on one thing that you were talking about, how you, you got burnt out and you took that six months to kind of reevaluate what it was about photography that you loved. And I know I've gone through that and I, I'm sure other people have gone through it, but the second you, you take something that you have a passion about and you try to make it a business or you try to either get a little bit of extra money or at least pay for your trips and that kind of stuff, then you start looking at it with different eyes and that can, that can cause burnout pretty fast too. So honestly, it's okay if you need to step back and reevaluate what you're doing and, and rekindle what it was about photography that you fell in love with because that didn't change. It's just maybe your perception of it. 
A hundred percent, man. And it's so easy to do. Like it sneaks up on you. You you get busy and you know, you, if you're doing it full time, you know, I got to make money. Like you set goals for yourself and you try to meet those goals. But at the end of the day, you do have to kind of just step back and be like, how like satisfying is it? And how grateful am I that this is what I do? Like, this is my job. I can go take photos any day of the week that I want to. And that is a beautiful thing. And, and like, I need to be so grateful of that and always remind myself when I start to feel like I have a lot of stuff going on, like, this is such a blessing and it, uh, mm-hmm. I need to be so grateful of, of what I'm doing here. Yeah. And, you know, honestly, I, I've said it before in the end, we, we have our memories and we have our photographs. Um, and this, this might be a little bit off on a tangent, but I, I like a lot of what you're saying about being blessed to be able to go photograph. But when my mom passed away a few years ago, I was trying to put together a little memorial and I was looking through all these old photographs and I just got to thinking what we're missing in the digital age. A little bit of that is, is the prints, but how important those photos are or how important they were uh, to be able to capture the life of, of my mother. And I see that in nature as well and how we capture nature and how important it is that we do what we do, not just because it's aesthetically pleasing or it's beautiful to look at or it's artistic, but because we get a chance as photographers to capture a part in time that will never be repeated. And I think that that's excellent. Yeah. I mean, a hundred percent that it's so funny. Like we were just talking about the Smokies before the, the recording got going, but like going back through and looking at all the images that I took on my first like big trip to the Smokies and putting quotations around that with my <laughs> hands right now. But like going back and seeing that really like re-inspired me going back and looking at the old photos and, and having that documentation there of like, this is the stuff that I used to try. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you can kind of box yourself in with like the rules of photography and right. things like that. But overall, like if it looks cool, just shoot it. I mean, and that's that's really what I used to do. And that got me like re-inspired and uh, really invigorated to go back out and do a lot more shoots coming up this year. Yeah, go go shoot what you love to shoot. That's and, and that really should be the key to photography in general is find what you like and, and go shoot it. Absolutely. And of course, that's not always the case. I, I there for a while I did portraits and weddings, which I will never go down that dark path again, if I can help it. Uh, because there, there was a point where I was shooting and I didn't love what I was doing. And, and those folks deserved somebody that loves what they're doing. And I, I think that if you, if you find that passion and you find what it is you love and you photograph it, your photography will expand and you'll get to see yourself grow as you begin to understand those rules and, and well, the, the guidelines of photography to kind of understand what it is about the image that you like. Yeah, absolutely. A hundred percent. You said it perfectly. Yeah. So what is it? Uh, we're going to, I feel like a, a squirrel today. I'm or a, actually a dog looking for a squirrel and finding several of them. That's kind of what I feel <laughs> like right now. So we might go off on a, a few tangents. Uh, the Smoky mountains, you mentioned going there. What, what's your favorite part of the Smokies to photograph? Um, my favorite part of the Smokies, and this is at a hundred percent risk of like having <laughs> more people go there. Um, so I'll be vague. I like the Tremont area the best. Oh yes. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's not well traveled at all. Tremont isn't the, you know, you typically don't see a lot of cars on the road. you rarely see anybody parked along the side, but there's a whole lot there for sure. Yeah, and I think a lot of people pass it just because mm-hmm. they head out to like the historic cabins um, and, and different things like that that are around the same area. But going into Tremont, there are just tons of waterfalls. I mean, you could spend an entire day just driving down that main road and getting out of the car and like just bouldering on a few rocks and, and trying to find some cool compositions. Also Greenbrier is a really yes. cool area of the park too. Um, that not a lot of people go to, I think more people should go to Greenbrier. Um, and you know, most of the people go up Newfound Gap road right. and go up to Clingman's dome and kind of hit the areas along that path too. And that's a cool area. And it's really fun to go shoot those places at sunrise and sunset. 
but getting down into the valleys and really finding the mountain streams that aren't typically photographed is probably my favorite part of the Smokies. And, and there are numerous compositions that have never been shot there that, that nobody's ever found. And I think that's what is so exciting about the Smokies. Yeah. And what, what's crazy is when you find a good spot, you could spend hours just to that one spot with multiple, multiple compositions. And you mentioned Greenbrier. That's when people ask me, where should I go in the Smokies? I always mention Greenbrier because if you, you, you go like you're going to the Ramsey Cascades trailhead, if you want to look that up, but there's a turnoff, a parking lot, it's the very first one after you turn onto the gravel road, there's a parking lot. If you just park there and walk across the street and go down toward the water, there's a, an area there that opens up that's absolutely magnificent. And <clears throat> the only thing I've ever seen there, I've never seen another photographer there, but I see uh, trout fishermen all the time. Yeah, yeah. And that's like, I think following the trout fishermen is one of the best <laughs> things you can do to find the best streams. Because they always seem to like be in the shot or around the same shot that I'm trying to get, which is still cool. But uh, I think they kind of have maybe a little more uh, in-depth understanding of where the best streams are. And, and they kind of find these little pockets where the trout like to hang out and get the nutrients that are coming down the water off of these little mountain cascades. So follow them. That's a pro tip for you. Follow the trout fishermen in the Smokies. <laughs> No, I, yeah, absolutely do that. And what, what's neat is because they're always looking, generally speaking, they're always looking for those little pooled up areas. Well, in, in the mountains, there's not a lot of those pooled up areas. So whenever you find one of those, you're going to find rapids that are nearby. And who knows, maybe you'll get some shots of the trout fishermen too. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's a great point. All right, so now that I went off on a Smoky Mountain tangent, I apologize for that, sort of, but I love the Smokies, so there we are. Um, we can always go out on Smoky tangents. I mean, we could talk for the, about the Smokies for hours. I know. You know, it's strange. Uh, the co-host that I have, Beth, she and I talk about all the time, well, what are we going to do next? What are we going to talk about? And out of all the all of the episodes that we've done, we've never done an episode on the Smoky Mountains. So I think absolutely it is deserving of a, of its own complete episode. But I, I kind of agree that I didn't in the beginning, but the more I think about it is directing people to certain areas that aren't visited. But generally speaking, if someone has taken the time to listen to a photography podcast, they're probably going to be a bit of a naturalist. So they're not going to do anything to necessarily harm the environment or anything like that. So I, I feel pretty safe about talking about Greenbrier and Tremont and, and those areas. But anyway, I think I've gone off on another tangent. Anyway, so the Smoky Mountains deserves its own episode, and I believe that we're going to have one coming up uh, relatively soon, as soon as Beth and I can get back on the same wavelength here. Perfect. So, so you, you talked about video and how you, you enjoy video, and I've done some videos as well, and you can see that on the YouTube channel. It's been a little while since I've done them. I did some infield videos I would say similar to what you've done, but it was kind of just me grabbing a camera and, and trying something new. A little bit of it was to try to reinvigorate that love for photography, but also to be able to show people these wonderful locations and teach them a little bit about what I look for. And for you, you mentioned the, the video being fun. So what is it about the video that you enjoy? Um, I think the video the part that I enjoy the most is being able to frame up a shot and knowing how to do that with photography. But then when you add in the moving element of it, whether you're moving the camera or the subjects within the camera are moving as well, it adds that extra little dynamic and extra little challenge getting a good shot like that and, and framing up a scene and also the ability to tell a story of a place through that getting wide shots and detail shots, just like you would if you were going out with, you know, a wide angle lens, a telephoto or a macro lens, trying to find the intricate details of a place has really forced me into some good shots with my photography, just being able to see you know, this would make a good foreground and just like a left to right pan with a video shot. Well, typically when I'm up there doing that or doing a shot like that, that 
often becomes a great photograph that I can get up there and take right after I do a video. Also, time-lapse has really invigorated me to feature places best. And I haven't done a lot of them just yet. I've just started playing around with them a little bit. But time-lapse is showing what features do in certain weather events in a certain place because then you're then you're getting into weather patterns and light and what light does over a period of an hour's time and that is just so cool to see sped up and i think it's just <laughs> the creative aspect of that being able to see that unfold in video versus a photograph and also using video to get me out in nature more Right. It has been huge just because it's so easy to sit in your home and like turn on the TV and, and, and eat, I don't know, chips and salsa or something, right. <laughs> but like knowing you have to go do a video, it forces you outside and it forces you to go explore. Uh, I mean, even, even the best photographers need that little push sometimes of, you know, I'm a little tired and I'm a little sore. I would love to stay in and drink coffee, but I'd love to also get some great shots and it forces you out into the snow or into the rain or into some really nasty conditions. But those are always the best. Shots always too. the best. Yeah. 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 The, the Everglades, it, it's a painful situation for me because I hate the heat and I live in South Florida now. And of course I go in the Everglades all the time and the best time to be out there is in the middle of summer when it's the worst time to possibly be in the Everglades. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, you know, it's that motivation sometimes of doing a video or uh, wanting to teach some aspect of photography with your camera that, that will motivate you sometimes to, to get off that couch. I've never gone on a photo shoot and regretted it ever. Uh, even if I'm exhausted and I'm tired and I go out there and I start shooting and then everything else just melts away and I'm worried about photography and that's what I'm thinking about and that's what I'm doing and that's what I'm loving to do. But I, I've often regretted sitting on the couch, you know, because then you see this magnificent sunset that you missed because you were too lazy to get up off the couch. So anything to help motivate, whether it's doing video or some new location or maybe, you know of a camera club that you can be a member of that, that can kind of help motivate you to do that. Yeah, that's so key. And I think like the regret part of it is so key just because you could go out and take a photo and, and come back into your house and, and put them up on Lightroom or something and see that you didn't get any photos when you got out there, but it was still probably a cool day just because right. you got out in nature and like local places too, I really want to encourage a lot of people to get out into local locations, like draw a circle around your house that's within a three hour drive and try to find all those little nooks and crannies that are around you. Because local places, if you go into a, into like a city when you travel and you tell them where you've been, most of the time people are going to be like, you know, I've lived here my whole life, but I've <laughs> never been there. And I think like that is just, it breaks my heart when people say that because you live right here and, and so close to you. Like, I think a lot of people need to get out into these local state parks, uh, national forests that are around them and really start exploring. Yeah. If you're one of those folks that's not fortunate enough to live next to the Grand Tetons or something along those lines, there's going to be something that's local. And one of the first episodes we did on the show was, was trying to encourage people to get out around your local area and find all those places that you can photograph and then ask your friends to look at them. And they just won't believe that that happens to be in your area. You know? And so there's so much that's untapped just in your area. I can guarantee it unless you live in, in the desert. And then even there, there's probably a, a good amount that you can photograph, but. Oh yeah. yeah. Just look at the ground <laughs> whenever you go out hiking, find different places. I mean, I mentioned national forests, national forests are mm -hmm. as beautiful as national parks. They are amazing places to go out and explore and not a lot of people are shooting them. So you can find some real gems in some national forests. Yes. And if you've been to a national park during the busy season, you'll understand why it's important to find those places like national forests that you can go during those busy seasons and, and still survive. <laughs> definitely. Definitely. Yeah. Try to do the fall time in the Smoky Mountains about noon on a Saturday 
and then you can let me know how that goes for you. <laughs> yeah, you'll be getting in for dinner around 10 p.m. at night. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Having not really gotten to see very much because you've except the taillights of the car in front of you. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, and that's another pro tip too. If you if you do any of those busy areas, go well before the sun comes up, and by the time you're done photographing and on your way back to the hotel, that's when the lines coming in will start. Yeah, yeah, and that that's when the the motivation to get out mm-hmm. will will come into play too, because your bed's gonna feel pretty nice before the sun comes up. That's right. But the sunrises are pretty nice too. Yeah, when that alarm clock goes off at 3.30 a.m. so you, you can be out there at the right place at the right time, it's going to be really hard to do, but it's worth it every time. Yeah, that's that's when real life sets in. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know how many times I've questioned myself when that alarm clock goes off that early. Like, what am I thinking? Why Why did I choose this? <laughs> you know, there's. I can remember one time that I... It was the one time that my alarm went off and I was like, yes, finally I can get up. And I was sleeping in my car in Grand Teton National Park and it was snowing like all around me. And it was like free. I think it was uh, like 28 degrees in my car and I just wasn't wearing enough clothes. I was sleeping in the passenger seat of this like junky rental car. And my alarm went off and I don't think I slept at all that night. And I was just like, finally, I can get up and go shoot because this was the worst night of my life. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. The the last May I was in the Grand Tetons and I had one of those 28 degree mornings. And that's pretty tough to get out there when it's 28 degrees and it's 30 mile an hour winds. And, you know, you got fog and clouds and the sun rolling. It's, It's wonderful. But if you're not prepared, it can hurt. Yeah, it's tough, man. So have you been to the Tetons very much? I've been that one time, and I stayed out there for about five days. Uh, I went out there, me and my buddy uh, Jason Hatfield led a workshop together out in the Tetons. And it was that same time of year, that May, late May, early June. Um, And we got some really good light. It was a really fun time, Um, but just was totally unprepared for for (laughs) camping, really. I'd I'm not a big planner on finding hotels or anything whenever I go out to shoot. And I usually wind up just sleeping in my car, uh, which isn't the most comfortable (laughs) stay in a national park. But, uh, Hey, you can get to locations a lot faster when you sleep in your car. Yeah. You just wake up. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) You get a couple extra hours sleep that way. Yeah, for sure. And uh, yeah, even if going up to Clingman's dome in the Smokies, if you just sleep in your car, you get another hour and a half, two hours of sleep. That's right. Yeah, I can't tell you how many times that I, I drove up at three o'clock in the morning just to park and then go back to sleep until sunrise. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I, I can tell you about one where I did that and then slept through sunrise. That was not a pleasant morning. Did so, you really? Yes, That's I hilarious. did. <laughs> I woke up and the sun was already up. And I was like, well, guess I can go home now. <laughs> <laughs> totally worth it. That's right. So I'd, I'm going to use that Grand Teton reference as a little bit of a segue because in, in May, May 20th through the 24th, uh, the Nature Photography Show is going to be doing a workshop there. And it's not quite yet full, but it's pretty close. So if you're interested, if anybody's interested in going, make sure that you go on over to the website, naturephotographyshow.com, check it out, sign up. It's going to be an absolute blast. I got to spend two weeks there last year and it was awesome. Nice, man. All right. So... Your YouTube channel, I notice that you have more than one or two subscribers. Me, on the other hand, I've got eh, maybe maybe four. So I don't. <laughs> you've got a lot more. Does having more subscribers on YouTube kind of motivate you to to get out and do more of those videos? Uh, yes and no. <laughs> it's it's kind of a complicated thing. So it's kind of like that burnout thing. Uh, right. You can focus on the subscribers and really use that as motivation to go out and like film a certain thing and try to get more. But if you keep doing that, you get into a groove of only doing the type of videos that they want or that the YouTube search engine wants you to do. And I think that's kind of a trap because when you do it that way, like a lot of my videos that I do, I'll search out the topic that I want to do in the field before I get out there. So I know keywords to talk about and different things like that. 
But in, on, the, on the other hand, you can get out there and you totally have to ditch everything because conditions aren't right. Things aren't coming together. And those are usually the most fun videos to do <laughs> because you're going totally off the cuff. Conditions are changing. You're, you're running around trying to get different compositions and different B-roll shots and, and things like that. And those are usually the most fun ones to do because everything is constantly changing. You usually come out with like three or four different photos from a location because you have varying conditions and you're finding different compositions. Those are the, those are the most fun. And, and that's kind of the way I've switched my YouTube videos over to is still searching up important keywords before you get out there, knowing what people are searching for and knowing what people want to learn on YouTube, but then using that information just as like, hey, by the way, while I'm in the field talking right. about this, like here's how to use a wide-angle lens best. Here's how to use a circular polarizer. And then you kind of go on with what you're doing with the composition and what you're doing creatively with settings because I think people want to know that initial stuff in photography, like how to use a wide angle lens, but then they hit a wall and they're like, well, where's the creativity aspect coming in? How can I take better photos uh, for a longer period of time? And I think that is what sets you up for the marathon that is YouTube, because that keeps <laughs> that gets people in the front door and then keeps them around longer when you can actually translate for them how to use a piece of gear or how to do a different technique and then do that in a more creative way or think a little bit differently about that with a composition and i think i think that's where a lot of landscape photography on youtube and tutorials or, or video content is going because it's kind of gotten a little bit saturated with that basic search term video and I think the creative aspect is where people want to see videos go, even though they don't necessarily know it yet. I actually, I completely agree. Cause for me in the beginning, learning the technical was, was the easier side of it. And I think a lot of folks start that way where they, they get the technical and then the, the natural progression of that, unless you get stuck in that technical side, the natural pro progression is going to be that creative side, which isn't, some people have the creativity and they struggle with the technical, but I think the vast majority of people can get the technical pretty good and still struggle quite a bit with the creativity. Um, I, why that is, I'm not totally sure, but absolutely the way it looks to me. Yeah. And I think a lot of it is like people, people can either easily take a step back and like go to my YouTube channel and be like, well, you have, you know, this many thousands of subscribers. Well, Okay that's just the marketing side of it. That's what I've done with marketing, but with photography, yeah. like here's what you can actually do and here's how you can get better. And this is really how you can enjoy a location at the maximum capacity, really getting out and exploring, trying different compositions, seeing what works, knowing what doesn't in this particular place. And that, that's really what the fun videos are all about. And then the most learning that you can get out of a video too. So it kind of goes back into what makes photography fun, and that is shoot what you like. With with video, you go shoot what you like, but you kind of you do a little bit of pre-planning for those keywords that you're talking about, but that's not the driving force. Uh, you want to go out and you want to photograph these locations and this this really really good stuff with composition, and you want to be able to show people that. And the YouTube using those little keywords is just kind of a, a side note on, on the way that you're thinking. Exactly, exactly. So, yeah, like if I want to go out like I did a video last week on how to use a wide angle lens, like for those background features. Well, I already know that how to use a wide angle lens is going to get a lot of search terms on YouTube. And a lot of people are going to be typing in that into the search bar. But then you feature something else within the video, like, okay, conditions may not be coming together here, but here's how you save this location on photo pills for later. And then you come back in those correct conditions and you're like, well, now we can really use the wide angle lens, right? Because conditions are here, here's the type of gear that you need. You need a circular polarizer for waterfalls. Here's, you know, 
tilt the wide angle lens down a little bit more, get a bigger foreground, stretch that background feature a little bit more to the top of the frame. Mm -hmm. And then you're really getting into the artsy side and the creative side of photography and, and knowing how to use that gear that they're searching for. You know, one, one thing I love about that is, is how you record when the conditions aren't what you wanted or what you thought you wanted. I, think a lot of photographers just assume that when you get your gear and you go out and you start photographing that everything's going to come together. And I'm here to tell you that that is absolutely a rare thing when everything comes together. But it's those moments that I chase. I chase those moments when everything comes together. In the meantime, I, I have to take the conditions that I'm given and try to make it work. And I'm not saying that you, you make a great photograph out of something that's horrible I'm just saying that you roll with what you're given to try to to become a better photographer and and to get those images that you might not have otherwise gotten had you gotten those perfect conditions, if that makes any sense. No, that's so true, for sure. And a lot of photography is really, you know, you plan for success, but then you have to adapt to what's actually right. happening. You can't plan a sunset out, you know, that only God can do that. And prepare a sunset for somebody to see, but like going out and shooting it and having that available conditions might not turn out the way you picture it in your head. So then you got to <laughs> think about, well, what are the conditions doing? Is it, is it a little more cloudy? Do I need to get my macro lens out? Are there wildflowers here? Can I do something with my telephoto lens? Can I do something right. with shapes in this landscape? There's so much you can do in the adaptation part of the creative process rather than just seeing one image and focusing on that one image that you want to get usually doesn't pan out very well. You have to be able to to think on your toes and, yeah. and use the gear that you have and really get around a landscape and, and photograph it correctly. And my goodness, to me, that's just, that's the most fun is when you go out there and you find those, that kind of conditions where you have to work to make it, to make it good. I mean, a lot of times nature just blows up and it shows you everything you want. And those are fun times too. And you chase those times, but my goodness, uh, I know last year when I was at the grand Tetons, I did a lot of that pre-planning where I was like, Oh, let me check the weather. Let me check this. Let me, what's the temperature going to be? What's the dew point? And I was worried about all this stuff and the grand Tetons in the springtime is so incredibly, what's the word, uh, chaotic the weather yeah. is that you can't predict from one minute to the next of what you're going to get. So I just gave up and I went out and that was the most fun that I had is when you, you just, you throw it all into the wind and you go out and you take what nature gives you and then you, you just make it work. And that's, it's so much fun. Oh my goodness. It's so, I want to go grab my camera right now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I had a similar experience in the Tetons, just like driving down the road and watching what the weather was doing <laughs> i ended up parking my car i don't even know if i was in an actual parking spot but i was so excited to see the sunrise coming together that i got out and had my camera already on the tripod and i'm like sprinting down the road with my camera <laughs> on my shoulder and actually like you know right when it gets down into the teton valley and you have that huge ridge that comes up to the main road Yes, there was a uh, a female elk coming up on that ridge, and I didn't see it, and we actually almost <laughs> collided. And like, I had to like regroup after that and photograph the sunrise, and it's like one of my favorite photos of all time. And it just goes to show, like, you never know what's going to happen. You just got to be prepared for it. Yeah, that, that I think I've told this story on the show before. So if you're a listener, if you've heard it, you can roll your eyes and that's okay because it's my show and I'm going to tell it again. <laughs> so I had a Schwabacher's Landing. It's a, it's a beautiful location that you go to in, in the Tetons. And I had shot all morning. And this is one of those missed shots, but sometimes it's okay. Um, so I went out and I photographed. I, I did the reflections. I did everything that you typically are supposed to do at Schwabacher's Landing. The clouds weren't with me that morning. That's okay because, you know, the beautiful reflections are worth it anyway. And so I packed all my gear up. I got up to my car. I shut the door and I looked and there was a moose that just walked right across in <laughs> front of the Tetons in the, in the river and the little stream there with the reflections and my, my gears in my car. Of course, I didn't even bother to try to reach for it because he wasn't going to slow down. And so I just watched and 
I tell you what, sometimes it's okay to put that camera down and just enjoy being where you are. And so I didn't try to get a, sh a shot with my phone. I didn't try anything like that. I just leaned on the car, kind of regretted not having my camera for a moment and just enjoyed it. I enjoyed the moment. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's such an important thing to do mm -hmm. too, is even if you don't get the shot or you don't have your camera, just take a second to look at it and like soak it all in. Even after you get done shooting and it's an amazing session that you go out and do, like don't immediately pack your gear up. Kind of just right. sit and watch everything and just like take in what you just experienced and what you just saw. It'll it'll make you appreciate photography so much more and it'll make you appreciate nature so much more. Right. One of the things that I ask my participants a lot of times on the, on the workshops is I'll tell them to look at the landscape and tell me what it is about that landscape that you like. What it, What is it that makes you want to, because they'll grab their camera and they'll immediately start. And it's good for them to slow down and look and be able to verbalize what it is about that scene that they like. And then you can help them kind of compose that shot. So I think it's very important to look at that and take it in find out what it is you love about it and find a way to photograph that to make it appealing. It's almost countercultural, mm -hmm. isn't it? It I is. We we are programmed to get out, get it done, check it off the list and head to the next. And That's right. that, like that doesn't work in nature photography. Right, well, one of my favorite people and he doesn't listen to the podcast, so Albert it's okay that you don't listen. I'm going to talk about you anyway, because we, we call him one and done. And he is a guy that just walks out. He takes his picture. If he's happy with it, he's like, all right, that's it. I'm done. <laughs> I'm out. And he'll just stand there the rest of the time. While everybody's taking pictures. That's so it's hilarious. just a, you know, it's like that countercultural thing. It's just, well, I've got the shot. We're done. Yep, exactly. And let's move on exactly. to the next. What's next? What's next? And, and you don't yep. take that time. So for sure. You know, what's funny to me is I've got this list of questions that I was going to ask, and I think we have gone off on such a tangent that I'm trying to, I'm trying to <laughs> find where it is that we're at on my little notes. So I'm going to try to bring it back around. And I want to ask you, because you do workshops, you do the, the YouTube, I'm sure you have a lot of interaction with the folks uh, that watch your YouTube channels, but what is it, what is the biggest mistake that you see people make? as an educator that you have to correct or that you feel the need to uh, turn them in a direction? Is there one thing that stands out the most? Uh, there's actually two things that immediately come to mind and, and it's usually people who are just starting out or going to national parks and going to these locations, either, you know, on a weekend trip where you're only there two or three days or on a family vacation and that's shooting in shooting certain locations in the wrong light. Right. And I'm a huge proponent <laughs> of you can always find something to photograph no matter what the light is. Right. But there are certain situations where you really need to get out there during soft light or know where the sun is going to rise and, and know, you know, the sunlight's going to hit these peaks right at, before sunrise. So you need to be out there at this time, yeah. not at 12 o'clock. Um, so knowing what time to go out and shoot places. And that goes into the planning part of it. And, mm -hmm. and I know we just talked about the adaptation part and being on your toes and thinking like that. Yeah, you still but got also, a plan. Yeah, being prepared is so key, especially when you're going into a new location. Do all your research. Soak it all mm -hmm. in. I mean, email photographers who've already been there. That's Usually right. photographers are pretty cool. They're probably going to email you back within a couple days, uh, if not within the week. And then the second thing that I always see a lot of beginners do uh, who reach out to me is they will put their horizon line right in the middle of the frame. <laughs> exactly. And it kills me, man. It, it, sometimes that's cool. Like if you have a reflection right in front of that mountain, go ahead and throw that horizon line right in the middle and, and do like a mirror shot of that mountain going. Yeah. And, and the reason why is just to, just real quick is you've got symmetry then. You've got a balanced photograph. Uh, when when you do that reflection in the middle. So it's okay once in a while, but there needs to be a conscious reason as to why you're doing it. Yeah, and, but I mean, if you have a sunrise or a sunset that, that is blowing up, move that horizon down to the lower third line That's on right. the bottom of your frame. 
if the sky isn't doing anything, move that horizon line close to the top of the frame, really try to cut out a lot of that negative space and feature the interesting part of the landscape. I mean, happens all the time. I, I mean, sometimes I'll even get back. Like I, I can remember one shot that I took in Arizona and, uh, I got it back and I was like, what am I doing? <laughs> I put this right in the middle of the frame is totally boring shot. And like it, I took a whole day hiking out there and it was a total wash, but that's a learning experience that you can learn from and, and get better next time. Yeah. That the sky, if the sky isn't doing anything interesting, don't show everyone how uninteresting it is. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. The, uh, the smoky mountains are real big on that too. Cause sometimes you, you can have beautiful clouds that get lit up when the sun comes up. But a lot of times you go out there and there's no clouds, but you might have that little fog layer if you're lucky down in the valleys. So when you do that, you want to show a little bit of that pink sky when it starts lighting up. But by and large, you don't want a lot of it if there's no interesting clouds to, to give that photograph the interest that we're talking about. So you show as much of the foreground as possible and kind of let the sky just be a little bit of a of a little niche at the top. Yeah. So that, yeah, that's just a little tip there. And I completely agree with that. That's right in the middle. Uh, if the sky's not doing anything interesting, leave it alone. Yeah. Even if you want to have the sun mm -hmm. in there, just use a little sun star pop right when the sun gets over the mountain right. and there you go. And you have a pretty killer shot, but, but really think about your foregrounds, your skies, like what's going to look the most interesting in this image. Right. And I know for me, the, the whole foreground, middle ground, background, if the sky isn't doing any, anything interesting, pull out that telephoto lens and you would be surprised what you can do because you can create your own foreground, middle ground and background just by zooming in and taking these uh, vignette shots of the mountains or wherever it is that you happen to be. Oh, yeah. Telephoto is easily my favorite lens yep. to use. I mean, everybody thinks wide angle, but telephotos that is where the magic happens. That is the lens to go to. That's right. I, I, I know it's, it's funny because you're out in this big wide open area and you're seeing all these beautiful mountains and you know, if the clouds are doing something interesting, okay, well maybe it's time to break out the wide angle a little bit, but by and large, if it's a big wide open area and I've got mountains or, or other scenes, I'm going to have a telephoto on and, and it seems counterintuitive. But then when I'm under the canopy of the trees or I'm doing something in the water, a lot of times I'm going to have the wide angle on at that point. Uh, so it seems counterintuitive, but trust us, you're going to love the telephoto lens on mountain landscapes or any landscapes in general. Yeah, for sure. Okay, so you've got some workshops coming up, I've noticed. So what can you tell us about those and, and what, do, what do people get when they come on workshops with you? So I've got two workshops coming up in 2020. I'm only going to be doing two in 2020. And we've talked about the Smokies a lot on this show and, and our appreciation for it. Mm -hmm. I'm doing a spring workshop in the Smokies. that's really going to be featuring valleys and, and that spring, like new blossoms and that spring look on a lot of the waterfalls that are there down in the valleys. And you know, I'll definitely hit up Tremont and Greenbrier in those two workshops that we talked about a little bit. And really just getting down in the valleys, working with that fog, creating a lot of atmospheric shots. Um, and then I'm also doing a fall workshop in the Smokies, trying to plan it out right to where it's right, right at the end of October. So you kind of get that fall color coming in, getting some detail shots of the leaves, but also getting some big wide shots of the mountains and, and, and all of their glory with their fall leaves kind of coming in. And that time of the year, yes, it's crowded if you're going to those typical spots, right. but I'm going to try to get the workshop down into some less typical places that they can go to and really impact their fall photography in the Smokies. And one of the big things I try to do with my workshops is keep it to five people. So it seems like a really small workshop. Uh, I mean, a lot of photographers do like 10 to 12. Mm -hmm. And that's when they have two leaders doing that workshop or something in that range. But I like to keep it to five just so I can have the most one on one interaction with people and, and trying to figure out what they're struggling with and their photography and helping them take better photos. 
and coming away from that workshop with a portfolio that they can show off of their trip is the main goal. So we work together as a group. If the majority of the group wants to kind of stray away from the itinerary that's on there and wants to go take this other type of photography, you know, we'll talk about the best timing to go do that uh, and and go tackle that project. And then we'll also get into a little bit of post-processing work, really figuring out how to do that part of the photography work once you get back from the field and and get on your computer, then what do you do? And, you know, the majority of the workshop is going to be in-field work, but it's also important to know that little bit, that little bit of a workflow that you can do with post-processing is pretty important too. And I also design custom shirts for all the members who come on. It's just like a little nice, here you go. Here's a shirt to help you remember the workshop too. So that's kind of like the fun part for me because I like design stuff. So I like to design little shirts for, for all the participants to come on. Yeah. See, I need to do that too. Everybody asks me for shirts when I, when I do the workshops and I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'll I'll do that. (laughs) And then I forget. (laughs) For me, it's like, it's like people always wear, you know, their Van Halen or like Led Zeppelin tour shirt. Like I, I, in my mind, I like to think of people being like, yeah, this is like the David Johnston spring workshop in the Smokies. And it's never going to happen like that. But I like to keep it in my mind that, that that's the scenario that's going to happen. Right. I, I love my photography shirts. So I wear them as often as I can. So I, I'm sure a lot of folks are like that too. Uh, I'd love to show it off. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's a fun project to do. All right. So we've talked a little bit about your, your future photographic plans. What are some places that you have in mind that you would like to do a workshop in? So some of the places that I'm really hitting around in my mind for workshops are Death Valley. I've, I've gone oh, back yeah. and forth on it a lot because I love Death Valley. Uh, and you can get a lot of great images just from a few days there because of the variation of landscapes that are there. But it's getting a little popular right now. Uh, I don't know if it's a little oversaturated with workshops going there or not. I'm still trying to figure that out. But I've also really kicked around the idea of doing an Outer Banks, North Carolina workshop oh, nice. and really photographing some of the lighthouses that are there. You can also work in some night photography out there just because it's on the coast. It's pretty dark. And with lighthouses at night, it's just an amazing scene. And then Acadia National Park, too, is, is a park that I've done one workshop in with my friend uh, Adam Woodworth and I'd like to go back and do another one there too just because again it's it's a place that has you know those old forests it has some other features that a lot of people shoot around the coast but it's also got some places up in the forest that you can get up into uh, and kind of bang around and then find some cool compositions so that's another place that I've really been thinking about going out and doing a workshop in. Yeah, all of those sound wonderful. I actually Beth and I are discussing right now trying to put together the details for doing a Death Valley workshop in 2020, but we're trying to to pick a, a time when it's not busy. So we're looking at those uh the out of season times like in January, trying to find a new moon, maybe we can do some night stuff. Won't necessarily be able to do the Milky Way because it's not the galactic core isn't quite visible in January, but that's okay. We can still do some night stuff, but all of those other places, the outer banks is a great idea. I I hadn't even thought about that. That's a wonderful idea for a workshop. And of course, Acadia is, is beautiful. I haven't been, but that's yet another item on my bucket list. Yeah. The outer banks is one of those places where like weather is kind of unpredictable. Right. Um, And it can change (laughs) at the drop of a hat. So that's where like your adaptation comes in. That's where you can get some really cool atmospheric clouds, like if a storm's coming through and, and it just passed and the sun's setting and, and you can get some really cool shots that way on the beach. And you also kind of, I mean, it's just a fun place to go. You have beach vibes. You can you know go back and get a nice seafood dinner right after a yeah. shoot. And it's just a really laid back place to be. I've been up there once. My wife and I went diving off the the coast there and it was an amazing dive. Uh, You have to go two and a half hours out, but 
still, it was, it was awesome. It's a great place to go, but I hadn't even thought about doing a, a landscape workshop there. That's awesome. Yeah, man. Should be fun. All right. Well, David, thank you very much for being on the show. And now's your chance to tell everybody where to find you. All right. So we'll, we'll do the rundown. You can find me on YouTube. Uh, you can go to my YouTube channel. It's called David Johnson Photography. You can go to my website and find my blog, a lot of my video content, some of my post-processing tutorials are on there as well. It's called davidjohnstonart.com. And then uh, you can find all my social media links on there as well. Usually if you just search David Johnston photo, you can find them on social media. Um, and I mean, that's about it. The website's going to have a lot of the things that we talked about on it, mm -hmm. the workshops, the blog, some of the tips that we talked about, like the infield YouTube videos. I do a lot of blog posts on those as well. Um, and then just some, just some fun things that you can get. Like I have a free ebook on there. That's 126 nice. pages long that you can download for free, uh, in exchange for being on the email list. And the email list is a good place to be too, because you get deals, you get, uh, some free tips for photography and you only get the content that you want to see. So one of the things that I do once people download that ebook and send me their email to use for my email list, they get a choice of seeing photography tips, workshops, post-processing tutorials, and courses. And whatever you select, that's the content you're going to get. You're not oh, going nice. to get random stuff about who knows what in photography. You're <laughs> only going to get what you want to see. So that's, that's one of the creative things that I've done with my business that I really like. And, and a lot of the uh, people on the email list have actually emailed me back and said, like, thank you for doing this. This has been huge for my inbox and, and my appreciation for what I want to learn in photography. Yeah, no, that's a that's a great idea, because a lot of times you sign up for these these uh, newsletters, like when people sign up for my newsletter, and then you end up getting a whole lot of stuff that you don't care about, which is what yeah. probably a lot of people get from the signing up to my newsletter. But I think that that's an excellent, excellent way that you've done it to give people the content that they want. And if they sign up for everything, well, then they get probably everything. But uh, if they're only select, then you're only going to send them what they're asking for. That's great. Yeah. If they sign up for everything, I feel sorry <laughs> for their inbox because I'm going to send them everything. <laughs> they're going to get everything. All right. Well, now is the awkward time in the show where I try to close it out and I fail miserably yet again. So David, thank you for joining us. And uh, hopefully I'll have you back on again soon. I, I've loved talking to you. Yeah, man. I'd love to come back on anytime. Just let me know. Oh, will do. All right, folks. Well, that's it. And well, as yep, that's it. Talk to you later. <laughs>